And hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel according to Matthew in chapter 26, and reading verses 17 to 30. So I invite your reverent and joyful hearing of the public reading of God's holy word. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. One of the more prominent words uh, we find in the Scripture, either uh, present explicitly or implicitly theologically, is that of uh, redemption. Uh, redemption uh, speaks uh, to the payment of a ransom. We're redeemed because a ransom has been paid. Uh, and of course, as we know, Christ is that ransom. Has to be a ransom for there to be redemption. And Christ is the uh, the only qualified ransom. A parallel word or synonym to ransom is release. We're released uh, from bondage. Christ uh, secures that release. It's what Jesus uh, is about to do uh, on the cross for the church. Before he does that, he institutes uh, the sacrament of uh, his table. Uh, as he prepares to go to the cross. Uh, something that's a great irony to me, the Lord's table is celebration. If you think about it, he's celebrating a great tragedy that's about to occur, but it's the irony of uh, the gospel. Well, when we speak of redemption, of course, redemption is tied inextricably to a redeemer. In our case, it's the majesty of Christ. Uh, something of the majesty of Christ here in a very subtle way 
Uh, it speaks to me in the fact that uh, our Redeemer is in total control of what is about to happen. There's not a chance event. Uh, he came to go to the cross. That's what He's about to do. Uh, the timing is linked uh, to the Passover. That's interesting because uh, all along the way, His enemies have been uh, trying to arrest Him, trying to do away with Him, but it's never been His time. Now is the time. Coming Passover signals that time. It's very difficult to control time. In fact, we don't control it at all. It really controls us. But Christ is in total control. And so he says, my time is near. I don't know of anyone else that can say that but Christ. And that is exactly what he says. The time is just right by divine fiat. Remarkable collusion of events and the Passover and the cross. Uh, he tells his disciples, go tell a man, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover at your house. Now think of that in terms of uh, chance. I don't believe in chance, but again, if you want to simply uh, play make-believe. Go into this city teeming with people, all the rooms rented, and go to a certain man and, and tell him <laughs> the Lord wants your room. Remarkable to me. Now, the event and all that it means belongs to Christ. He owns it. The room of the host belongs to Christ. They go into the city and find just that man. No chance at all. Uh, regardless, it'd be very difficult to find such a room, but the room has been set aside for Christ. And this man has room. Reminds me of the triumphal entry. Go uh, go to a man who has a colt and tell him the master has need of your colt. Just like me knocking on your door saying, I have need of your, I don't know what you drive, let's just say Corvette. You'd probably say, no, you don't. But the Lord has need of the colt and it's given because Christ is in control. Of the mother of the colt, of the colt, and the man who owns it. Because really, Christ owns it all. Again, uh, redemption is tied to a redeemer. I'm reminded of the great words of the Apostle Luke, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. No one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. No other name. Every name is excluded. You can ransack all of history and civilization. There's only one name who is the qualified redeemer of the people of God, and that is Christ. And His majesty, of course, is one such reason. I love these little subtle events of the history. Christ in total control of what is about to happen. And what is about to happen is in death. He's in total control of his own death. One thing I've learned about my own life, the older I get, is I really control nothing. But Christ is in control of everything. It's a wonderful application, I think, in terms of our own culture. We oftentimes use a fraying like, it's all in who you know. That's really a true statement. It's all in who you know. But when it comes to redemption, it is everything in who you know. 
because the Redeemer is everything. Well, redemption is also secured in fulfillment of Passover, uh, verses 17 to 19. Christ is going to fulfill the Passover celebration. It's been practiced for decade upon decade after the institution by Moses. It's now going to come to an end in Christ. Again, verses 17 to 19. Passover was a perpetual celebration of the greatest Redemptive event in history. Israel from Egypt. A Passover lamb was slaughtered and its blood used to mark the top and the sides of the doorframe. It was a sacrifice to the Lord who passed over Israel and struck down the Egyptians. Exodus 12, 27. Jesus is going to fulfill the Passover in its totality delivering us from bondage of sin and death. What's remarkable about the Passover is Jesus is now the price. One thing for Jesus to go get a lamb is entirely different when he becomes the lamb. Paul is very clear on this in his first epistle to the Corinthian church. For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5-7. He's our Passover. His blood marks us. And so the entire spirit world has to pass us by. They can harm us physically, but they cannot touch us spiritually. Because of the blood of Christ, our Passover. That statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 is an explanation or reason for righteous conduct. What Christ has done makes us new. It's very interesting uh, when you look at the uh, Johannine chronology, when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered, Christ was on the cross. As the lamb's bones were not to be broken, neither were his. I mean, how could you control that being treated by Roman soldiers who were really, I mean, they were very, very cruel because Christ was in total control. His bones were not to be broken. And so they were not. Uh, the convergence, again, is remarkable. In my own mind, this is the last Passover I mean, I'm not unmindful that on occasion churches have a Passover meal. I, I don't think it's evil, but maybe they ought to rethink their theology. But again, they want to taste the bitter herbs because of the bitter suffering in Egypt or the bowl of salt water and all the tears that were shed. But, but again, there's something going to replace the Passover, and that something is a someone who is Christ. greatest redemptive event in history is now fulfilled by Christ. And nothing can supersede it or surpass it or overtake it. It all stops with Him. So again, redemption is uh, secured by fulfillment. And Christ is that fulfillment. Redemption uh, is also accomplished 
in overcoming the end time tribulation. As you know, I certainly in Matthew it's very clear to me that uh, the end time tribulation is uh, has begun in Christ, and He's going to express a measure of it at the cross. He's also going to overcome it. Verses twenty to twenty-five. Uh, there's a remarkable reminder of that here in our text because Jesus announces that one of the twelve is going to betray him. How did he know that? He knew it because it was God. He knew it because he had appointed the one who was going to betray him. Our remarkable Redeemer in total, absolute control. Of course, all of the uh, apostles are horrified. There's an allusion to, uh, uh, to Psalm 41. Uh, the context of the 41st Psalm is of a righteous sufferer. And he calls upon God for deliverance. Remarkable thing about the, the psalmist is uh, he's going to be harmed uh, by a friend. I, I'm sure some of you have been betrayed by friends family member. It doesn't make any difference. You think you're alone, aren't you? No, you're not alone. Christ is the intensity of all the fulfillment of being harmed by a friend. Uh, he had been a blessing to Judas. He had secured uh, many things uh, for Judas, but now Judas is going to betray him. Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So that Christ is fulfilling the psalmist. And so is Judas. But in our case, uh, our Redeemer is fulfilling Scripture. That in and of itself speaks to the qualitativeness of His identity. He fulfills Scripture. Fulfills the Passover. All the other Redeemers in the world, all the other religions of the world are really in the ash heap of history. Just simply a vain, empty practice. Only Christ fulfills uh, such scripture. Uh, I, I know and understand it's not very politically correct in our culture. I know the church uh, uh, plays around with this concept, but only to its harm. I, I, I was at a, a religious institution the other day, and outside the institution was this modern statue of, uh, representing all the religions of the world kind of scratch my head because it was next to a Christian institution. I mean, how do we do, want to go up to the people in the school and say, I mean, how do you do that? That's insanity. I mean, you can't, you can't claim to be a Christian institution and own other religions. Oh, but, well, that's the problem. Oh, but. We need to recover the understanding of Christ as the only redeemer of the people of God. Everyone else is rejected and excluded. Uh, here, it's uh, Christ is going to uh, inaugurate and overcome the end-time tribulation. That's part of the tribulation we have to overcome today in our own lives, dealing with the fact of pluralism that's everywhere in our culture. Be brought back to the reality that in Christ alone. It's very interesting that uh, Psalm uh, 41 where the righteous sufferer is harmed by his very close friend, the psalmist uh, closes uh, the text by praising God. Isn't that remarkable? 
praises God. We need to catch something of the irony of that. Generally, when a close friend, associate, family member harms us, we perhaps want to do unbiblical things, but the psalmist teaches us what we ought to do, and that is that we ought to praise God. And so we read in Psalm uh, 41.9, the 13th verse, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. In the deepest of trial, God rescues His people. In the darkest of uh, the enmity that Christ is about to confront upon the cross, set in motion by Judas, He praises God. At some point in the Passover meal, Jesus announces the betrayal. In John, Jesus gives Judas a piece of bread. The text reads, Satan enters his heart. And Jesus says to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. And he went out. John says, and it was night. And the words are also sinister. He went out and it was night almost as a reminder that he was a child of darkness. And he goes to do this most sinister of all deeds, and it was dark, because his heart was dark. But Jesus is in command. In my own mind, uh, the event occurs before the institution of the Lord's table. I say that for one reason, theologically. In the Passover meal, you were to remove all leaven, And so the leaven is being removed from the institution of the Lord's table. It's the point of 1 Corinthians 5-7. Because Christ our Passover has been sacrificed, be very careful about the leaven you bring into your heart. And Judas has no place at the table. He was excluded. He's pushed out. He's pushed away. He's the leaven removed from the feast. But it's all according to Scripture. That sense, Jesus is the Son of Man, verse 24, fulfilling the Word of God. So that our Redeemer fulfills Scripture. He fulfills the end-time tribulation and He overcomes it. You know, in our world, if we... If we learn that someone's going to betray us, we try to set in motion events to stop it. Jesus pushes it forward because it's all ordained in God's providence to secure redemption. Redemption is also present in a recasting of the Passover meal to the Eucharist. Going to totally recast the Passover. It's one reason at Grace Bible Church we don't do Passover meals. I'm not suggesting it's evil, but if our Lord recasts it, why should I reinstitute it? Eucharist comes from the Greek verb uh, eucharisteo to give thanks. The thanksgiving celebration in light of what Christ has done. Verses 26 to 30. What does he do? He takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, gives it to the disciples and says, take, eat, this is my body. totally new to the Passover meal, but that's being eclipsed by Christ. 
The Apostle Paul, in his account of 1 Corinthians 11, reads, which is for you. That prepositional phrase is absolutely essential that we understand. For you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's to be a commemoration of his substitutionary death. The lamb dies that you might live. That wrath is poured out upon the lamb that is slaughtered that we might live and escape wrath. It's the whole point of substitutionary atonement and the shedding of blood. That our Savior suffered bodily and vicariously in our place for you. And when we eat with our host, we have spiritual fellowship with him. It's another remarkable understanding of the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and the 16th verse. The Apostle Paul says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? The word is literally fellowship, koinonia. We have fellowship, we're participating. We're having spiritual communion with Christ who's head of the table. It's not the bread which we break, a participation, a fellowship in the body of Christ. We're receiving from Him the blessings of His substitutionary atoning death. Then He gives them the cup. In the Passover celebration, the Passover meal, there were four cups of wine parallel to the four promises of Exodus 6, 6 and 7. Uh, the third cup was uh, the cup of blessing. It is here, I think, that Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. My blood uh, is being poured out. Again, speaking to the violence of his death. Violence because of our affront to God as sinners, but Christ providing cup of blessing, cup of celebration. Uh, he drinks the cup of judgment. We drink the cup of perpetual celebration, communion with Him. We celebrate for the forgiveness of sin. I will tell you again, that's one of the greatest prepositional phrases in all Scripture, for the forgiveness of sin. That our Redeemer ratifies a new covenant. number of... Uh, number of Old Testament texts that are uh, coming together here. Let's look at a couple of them. Uh, again, God deals with people on the basis of covenants. Moses institutes and ratifies the Old Covenant. Uh, Exodus uh, chapter 24 uh, in verse 8. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to all these words. Jesus is now fulfilling that in a greater sense. Spilling His own blood. Ratifying a new covenant. The old is now going to be superseded. The old covenant. It's a new covenant. If you will, a new contract. God is making a new contract 
with the people of God. Again, Moses ratifies the covenant at Sinai with his blood. Jesus is now recasting it, signifying a new covenant with his blood. Again, speaking to the violence of his death and substitution. Again, the uh, word covenant, uh, another uh, Old Testament allusion, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. Pardon me, verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Jesus is now ratifying that covenant, shedding of his blood. Probably also a reference to a couple of the great servant songs from the prophet Isaiah. Just simply read. Uh, read one because of time. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 6. Covenant, new contract God is, God is making. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people as a light for the Gentiles. That's remarkable to us because it means that the new covenant now includes Gentiles. The old covenant established by Moses was only with Israel. Now do it, God is doing a much greater thing. He's sweeping all the nations into the covenant. Not universally in the sense of uh, all people without exception, but all people without any distinction whatsoever, including Gentiles. Rich and poor, man, woman, slave, free, Christ is making a new deal. And what's remarkable, of course, in the Old Covenant is they were given tablets of stone. They broke them. Now God's going to write it on their hearts so the Word of God is going to be kept. That's the majesty of Christ as the Redeemer. It's going to affect a law, a covenant so great and majestic that we become keepers of the Word of God in the doing thereof. God sets it in motion, the New Covenant, Ratified by Christ. Again, you have to recognize in Moses, <laughs> the covenant, they failed. But now because Christ is making this covenant, the people are going to succeed. And so, it says in verse 28, for the forgiveness of sins. Moses and the mediators of the old covenant could not keep the people from failing. And so God starts over and sets in motion that which will keep them from failing in the blood of Christ. That God in Jesus will triumph. That He ratifies it means it will stand forever. Never ever to be eclipsed. The old eclipsed totally. The Passover meal eclipsed. Now, what Christ has done can never be eclipsed because it's perfect. 
Nothing can be added to it or take away from it. Nothing needs to be added to it or taken away from it because he, who He is, is is our Redeemer. That He will succeed again where all others have failed. That it is for sin as our substitute uh, means that He takes our place establishing forgiveness. It's the greatest possession that anyone could ever hold. Forgiveness. In my own mind, probably notwithstanding many churches in Oklahoma City today, I believe forgiveness is a one-time event secured at the cross. I know in my own life I ask God uh, for forgiveness, uh, but as a renewal of the intimacy of fellowship because Christ has already established it on the cross. I don't get salvation because I ask God for repeated forgiveness and repentance. I have salvation because of the forgiveness that I have because of Christ's death upon the cross. That's a remarkable event. But for forgiveness is what Jesus says. Uh, we want to add everything else in there. But he's not talking about the future. He's talking about past, present, and future. If there is forgiveness in any other name, in any other way, we don't have forgiveness because we're always sinning. The point is we are forgiven forever because Christ is our Redeemer. For forgiveness... I know sometimes, rightfully so, we get vexed over our sin, and so we, we confess and we repent. And in our case, it's a repeated event, but it's all based upon the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. We can get all worked up, and perhaps we should get all worked up, but at some point we have to recover to the present possession of forgiveness that is forever in Christ. Never ever can the cross or the sacrifice be repeated because it's irrepeatable. I mean, I understand the Roman Catholic Church does that every Sunday in the Mass. We don't do the Mass at Grace Bible Church. We remember the sacrifice and all of the benefits that accrue to us every day. That one-time event by that one-time person, Christ, for their forgiveness of sin. I mean, it's again, a number of Old Testament allusions here simply turn to one. Uh, the last great servant song, Isaiah 53, verses 11 to 12. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And therefore I'll give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life into death and was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He bore your sin upon the cross. Paid the price in full. In Hebrews 9.21, apart from the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Well, there is shedding of blood, the blood of Christ upon the cross. In terms of prophetic fulfillment, hearken back a number of months ago, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son. 
you to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Exactly what he's about to do. It's also a reminder that the making of this new covenant is making a new people, starting over. The end-time salvation, new creation, begins in Jesus and His end-time tribulation on the cross where He saves His people from their sin and He saves them forever. It's really true that the institution of the Lord's table that Christ is now beginning is a memorial event, but it's more than that. It's also receiving by faith of all of the daily benefits of the new covenant. Forgiveness is forever in Jesus, the greatest benefit of all time. Uh, We're awash uh, in our culture talking about benefits. Do I get health care benefits? Do I get uh, benefit of vacation time? Uh, We all, in fact, I'm not so sure today that we don't look more importantly at the benefits than we do the actual salary. We get the greatest benefit of all time, never ever to be revoked because of Christ our Redeemer and the work of redemption. We have to learn to live in light of the reality of what He's done for us and what He makes of us. Well, again, redemption is in the recasting Passover meal that we call the Eucharist, but redemption is also futuristic. It sets the greatest event of all time in motion. It's a reminder that it hasn't achieved its terminal event in absolute glory. But Jesus here tells us that it will. Again, Matthew chapter 26 and 29th verse, I tell you, I'll not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. You and I now own the greatest futuristic event of all time. Because the next feast is going to be in heaven. And Jesus says He will not participate with Him again until the great messianic banquet celebrating the conclusion of our redemption. Some people contend that our Lord here suspends the drinking of the fourth cup of the Passover meal. That may very well be true, but I I think He's just suspending or participating with the Eucharist uh, until He will do it in heaven. I mean, you know, in the reading of the book of Acts, he ate and drank with his uh, his uh, disciples and believers, but no record that he ever took the uh, Eucharist meal with them. I think he suspends that until he will do it in the greatest of all times in heaven. You ever, I'm sure you all watch television. You ever see those advertisements for this trip and that trip? This cruise and that cruise and this river trip and that river trip. And they all look like they're a blast. I mean, wow, to participate in one of those trips. The future has been secured for us in Christ. 
We have a reservation in the greatest event of all time, and it cannot be canceled. You don't even need trip insurance for this event because of the one that reserves it for you, reminds you of it when he suspends uh, the Eucharist until the last banquet in heaven, or the first banquet in heaven, pardon me. It's our reminder of the already and not yet. We are redeemed, but the fullness of our salvation is a terminal point in glory. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 25. It's a conceptual allusion to the prophet. Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all his peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. On that day, his people will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. Messianic banquet. It looms in our future. We will be there because Christ was there for us on the cross. We looked at this momentarily, again, a number of weeks ago, Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, reference to the great Messianic banquet. I say to you, on that day many will come from east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many will come. They can't be kept from coming. Because Christ writes His law upon our hearts. He will invite us and we will go. He will make it happen. We'll celebrate with the great patriarchs. By the way, there's an implicit reference to the gospel here. Verse 12, but the subject of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Reference to Israel. They're being shoved aside. They reject him. You reject him. There's no place for you at the messianic table. Come to Christ. Don't wait. The benefits are too profound. And there are no benefits apart from that which he secures upon the cross. If you know Christ, you'll be there. And uh, he has made a place for you. And you will celebrate. The prophet Isaiah recasts it in this great meal, overflowing with wine and food. Again, I don't think it's literal, but just a reminder, it's a great celebration. No more tears. Think of it. How many tears do we shed in our lifetime? Ended forever. Joy. Unspeakable joy forever. What God gives to his people. That's why we yearn for our salvation. The Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8, we groan as the whole creation groans for the greatest of all redemption. 
It belongs to us because of the new covenant. We are heirs of the kingdom of God. And his promise makes the event certain. That's what is suspended. But the great Eucharistic meal will achieve its end point, the great Messianic banquet. That he will, as God, fulfill his word to us. As the uh, apostolic company goes out, And Jesus goes to the great passion event. From the Passover meal, we, uh, we know that they, uh, they sang, uh, in particular, at this occasion, Psalms 115 to Psalm 118. Perhaps a good reminder of the importance of memorizing Scripture. Irony to me is the Psalms speak of great joy, and here's Jesus going to the cross. Maybe that's a good illustration to memorize Scripture that even in the darkest events, God will create light. Just read some of the verses that they would have they would have sung. Psalm 118, verses six and nine: "The Lord is with me; I will not be afraid. What can man do to me?" I mean, some very terrible men are about to do some very terrible things to Christ. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. Psalm 117, verse 2. For great is His love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Again, I'll simply end it there. They were singing Psalm 115 to Psalm 118. uh, Celebrating uh, in the midst of conflict. When you know Christ is your Redeemer, that's what you can do. Celebrate in the midst of every conflict. And knowing at some point the conflict will be totally concluded and joy will last world without end. Because of Christ our Redeemer in His work of redemption. And so, it's wonderful reminder from our text that that we are forgiven in just this way means that we are saved forever. Forever. People in our culture with health care try to live forever. I mean, we read somewhere that if you if you exercise, you add three years to your life. To your life. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a great thing, but try forever in Christ. You know, I think it's a great testimony of the church that has left to us the great hymns. Remind us of just this, in the cross, in the cross, be my glory forever. How about the great refrain, full atonement can it be? Most American churches can't sing that. We can sing it because of Christ. Full atonement. Nothing lacking. Full atonement can it be.
but perhaps the best. Hallelujah. What a Savior.